computer technology still cannot tap the level of imagination that we as humans have access to. We are sentient beings. We have an ability to sense make in our environment, which stems from interoception connected to the vagus nerve in our body, as well as perioception. And that really matters in terms of the sense that we make from our environment, the sorts of questions that we can ask, and therefore the amount of creativity that we can we can build as a capacity. I still feel very optimistic about our ability to do that. Welcome to the Disrupted Workforce, where we help courageous professionals explore, expand, and evolve in the future of work. Are you curious to understand how all these disruptions are changing how we work in our careers? Trying to self-assess and build an actionable plan to thrive in the future of work? Looking for research and insights from thought leaders to help you and your organization? Then this is the show for you and you found your tribe. I'm Alex Schwartz. And I'm Nate Thompson. And we are your hosts. Today on TDW, we are thrilled to have Natalie Nixon on the show. Natalie was introduced to us by TDW guest and Future of Work rock star, Heather McGowan. Natalie has been called the creativity whisperer for the C-suite. And as a creative strategist, Natalie advises leaders on achieving transformative business results by applying wonder and rigor, which we're going to get into on the show today. She's been selected as one of the top 50 keynote speakers in the world and is sought after for her accessible expertise on creativity, the future of work, and innovation. And a few more accolades, and there are many folks. Natalie was named among the top 10 women keynote speakers of 2021 by Big Speak and has been featured in many little-known outlets like Forbes, Fast Company, and Inc. She is the author of the award-winning The Creativity Leap, Unleash Curiosity, Improvisation, and Intuition at Work, which we will also be talking about on the show today. And her firm, Figure 8 Thinking, was named among the top women-led innovation firms by Core 77. Now, we encourage you, absolutely go check out her website. That's figure8thinking.com. You can sign up for her EverWonder newsletter, get sample chapters of her book and lots of other great stuff. You can also find her on LinkedIn, of course, where she has a lot of fantastic content there as well. Her clients have included Microsoft, Salesforce, Comcast, Citrix, Living Cities, VaynerMedia, and Bloomberg. And she's also a LinkedIn learning instructor with her course, Lead with Inquiry, Improvisation, and Intuition, with two more LinkedIn learning courses on the way. Marketing guru Seth Godin has said that Natalie, quote unquote, helps you get unstuck and unlock the work you were born to do. And given that adapting and reinventing ourselves for the future of work and not getting stuck is a big topic here at TDW, we just love that perspective from Seth. Natalie's experience living in five countries combined with her background in anthropology, fashion, academia, and dance distinguish her as a -a one-of-a-kind creativity expert. Natalie, thank you so much for being with us and welcome to TDW. Thank you so much for that awesome introduction. And thank you, Alex and Nate, for having me. Really happy to be here. Wonderful, wonderful. Let's dive in, Natalie. I was struck by your background. You attended four different schools between kindergarten and 12th grade. You have a background in cultural anthropology and fashion. You were an entrepreneurial hat designer in New York. You later lived in Sri Lanka and Portugal, making undergarments for Victoria's Secret. And then back here to the States where you helped design a strategic MBA at Thomas Jefferson University in Pennsylvania before starting your consulting business, Figure 8. So that's an astounding career range, right? And we firmly believe there's this need for personal reinvention and for people to have enough courage to try new things that maybe are quite different from what they used to do. So was your diverse background intentional or happenstance And sort of what was your mindset as you went through these reinventions? Yes, the reinvention of my life at multiple pivot points, I credit to my parents in large part. And while it felt incredibly random, unwieldy, chaotic, and happenstance, sometimes when I was going through it, I actually is now become a very intentional practice. And the practice is summed up but to follow your heart. And I want to share um, a quote that my mom 
shared with me and my sister recently. So my, my dad, Frederick Douglass Weathers, uh, passed away about 12 years ago now. And he was my greatest encourager. But my mom has been going through old notebooks of my dad's. And she started sharing some of the insights that my father has, had collected, his own musings. And I want to share this one because it, it helped me make better sense of myself. <laughs> so my dad, in one of his musings in his notebook, he wrote, there will always be plenty of practical people in the world. What is needed is the constant encouragement of the wild-eyed dreamers who are too, air quotes, impractical to give up the, air quotes, impossible, who are too impractical to give up the impossible. So that was so um, energizing to me just to see that my dad had written that down because I'll share a story of when I was a sophomore in college, I was having a first world existential crisis where I didn't know what to major in. So I called home in tears because I didn't want to disappoint my parents. They had sacrificed a lot for our education. And I wanted to make sure I majored in something that would guarantee a good J-O-B at the end. And so I called them and I basically started explaining away what I wasn't good at, what I wasn't interested in, but they sounded they were areas that sounded super impressive, like economics and political science, sociology. And they said, well, what do you want to study? And this is in the days when there were two phones in the house, one in the kitchen and one in their bedroom. So they were each on a phone. Yeah. And <laughs> I again avoided the question. They said, what are you enjoying? And then I apologetically began to show that I loved these anthropology classes I was taking. And I was really getting into these Africana studies, multidisciplinary courses. And almost at the same time, they said, that's what you should study. And I thought I heard them incorrectly. I was like, wait a second. So you'd be okay if I maybe had a double major in that? They said, yeah, that's what you should study. And my father said, Natalie, if you study what you love, you will have to turn away opportunities. And it was like this load lifted off my shoulders. And it was one of the greatest gifts they ever gave me. And I have been following that advice ever since. It's such a great story and so amazing that your parents had the wherewithal to tell you to do that. I mean, so many parents really struggle, right? And whether it's that they have a prescribed path in their head that is what children must do in order to be successful, or whether it's fear-based and giving advice, like if my child takes this road less traveled, I'm so, I, I have to protect them, they're going to fail. And, um, the, the wisdom and the trust and the honoring who you are and their belief in you. I mean, what an incredible gift. That's progressive. So cool. Very progressive. It was very progressive. I, I agree, Alex, that, that I think at the root of all, for all parenting, it comes from a protectionist stance, right? You're trying to protect your kids and you do the best of what you got. But, you know, Nate, to your point, it was progressive. I, I even go as far as say it was pretty radical. It was a very radical act because. I don't come from um, a family of financial wealth and I wasn't looking into walking into a trust fund um, when they died or inheriting a family business or anything like that. So for them to tell me during a time when, quite frankly, when I would go home for family days, you know, the, the, the practical advice is go into computers, you know, computer yeah. science or something like still that. Is. <laughs> and my, still is, right? And, yeah. and my you know, when I said I, I'm studying culture anthropology, all they could think was like, what, like National Geographic? Like, what is that? I'm going to do that. So, yeah. So That's that was great. pretty mm -hmm. radical of them, yeah. right? Thank you, mom and dad. Yes. Well, the question that I have for you, it's kind of related to that, is something that you wrote in your book. So in, in the creativity leap, something that really stood out to me is this quote that you said, our educational system teaches out creativity and boardrooms reference it as an afterthought. And again, here's something that's really important to the in, to the world that is that is being considered a risky place to go, right? Creativity is being considered a risky place to go. In your mind, these are really fundamental reasons why so many people feel their ability to be creative is limited because they're hearing these limiting messages at the boardroom level and at the educational level. And also your point of view that a lack of creativity in companies is what kills innovation and a primary reason for companies falling off the Fortune 500 list, which we've seen again and again as something that's accelerated in the past 20 years. So 
you believe we are all so much more creative than we think we are. Given that, why is it so hard for companies, boardrooms, and education to recognize and promote this? Well, somewhere along the way, we have done a couple of things. In our educational system, we've decided, not in all, but in kind of the mass models of, of cultures of learning, we've erred on the side of what's the answer? And you see this just in the proliferation of standardized tests to try to figure out which box and track people fit in. And in reality, as a former educator, I was a professor for 16 years. I taught middle school English for five years before that. There's a bell curve in terms of how we learn. And that bell curve spans visual learning, um, more audio, oral learning, more experiential, tactile learning, um, as well as more verbal learning. And what's interesting is that people who tend to go into teaching, A, love school, and B, love school in a way that was highly verbal, which means that we knock out the tails of that bell curve of people who don't learn or excel or experience the world only through a verbal and even sometimes oral, oral, not even oral, I mean oral with the ear lens. So one of the things that's happened is that the way, the culture of learning and the, and the, and the mass ways that we are educated is erring on the side of what's the answer versus following up the process. And then my mom figured out that there was this great private prep school in the community, Germantown Friends School, Quaker School, um, that was offering a test for entry and for a community scholars program. So I took the test, did really well in it, and entered this Quaker school where my grades plummeted <laughs> for mm. the first two years oh, of school. No. Primarily because seventh grade, for me at least, sucked. It was horrible. It was like awkward black girl on steroids. I didn't, I came from a black neighborhood where no one played field hockey or lacrosse. And I had to navigate taking home a field hockey stick from the bus, walking home every, every day. I, you called your teachers by the first name. There was a campus. There was, there was a lot to get associated with. Also, the hugest part was the culture of learning was different. I had gotten so good at completing the worksheet, getting the gold stars, you know, answering the mm-hmm. right question versus, begging forgiveness, not permission, yelling out the answer and then backtracking with, with a very compassionate teacher. Okay, that's not what we were looking for, but let's explore why that question, why that wasn't the best answer, right? It was so foreign to me. And finally it clicked around ninth grade. And I realized that back on my block and back in the public school environment, we were being trained to fill in the dots, literally, to stay in line. And now I was in a community in a culture of learning where we were being educated to think up the questions. We were being educated to dream up different future scenarios, which of course I didn't articulate it that way in ninth grade, but this light bulb went off for me. And then I went on to have access to very elite, amazing um, education, graduate from Vassar College, um, honors, and later worked full-time while, while earning a PhD from the University of Westminster in London. But here's my conclusion. All kids should have access to learning environments where they're learning to fall in love with the process and not just learning to fill out the dot and figure out the right answer. Because the reality is when we get to our work environments, it's not black and white. There's so many shades of gray and we have to be so adaptive. We have to figure out multiple possible approaches, not just one answer. So we continue that culture of learning into our work environments where with the clients that I work with, a lot of what the initial undoing is, is to create a revert away from um, question shaming, which a lot of us have experienced where we're afraid to raise our hand and ask a question to building a culture of inquiry and really embracing questions and not shirking from them. I love every bit of that. And it's alive and well. So I grew up, much like you did, where it was follow the, you know, get in, fit in and fall in line, right? Follow the rules. And then my kids go to a school where they have a program called Adroit, which is based on design thinking. So the entire school goes through programs where you're given an assignment and you have to go out and get user feedback and build wireframes and prototypes and see if you can answer questions about, you know, it's just, it's, it's so refreshing to see 
that in them and creating, they're kind of having a similar experience to you, that awakening, like, wow, I can do this. I can create freely. And this is my canvas <laughs> to paint on. And I was just, I'm, I'm marveling at that going, I learned that in my 40s, <laughs> right? right? The idea of right? design thinking, my kids, you know, kids is in third grade. <laughs> anyway, that, yes, that whole thing that. is so exciting to me. So I'm, it's very validating to hear you say that and to, to know that's so critical at such a formative time. It is. It's essential. And I think that our, your children's future employers, if, unless they adapt, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to struggle with increasingly a workforce that expects to be able to pose questions to be much more exploratory. Yes. And we're actually going to talk more about that. Um, before we do, I want to ask you about this person you interviewed in the Creativity Leap because it's such a cool story. And there's something inside of it that I feel like is really, really valuable. Jim Caruso is an accountant who is also a storm chaser. He chases tornadoes. Now, those two things on the surface couldn't be more different. <laughs> and you call this duality. So yes. tell us about Jim and why this duality is so important in your Wonder Rigor framework. I'm so glad you brought up Jim Caruso. Jim and I actually just texted right before, just like five days ago, we were texting with each other. He's, he's actually away on a tornado storm chaser adventure, maybe still right now. He was as of last week when I reached out to him to say hello. And Jim is someone who I met through our mutual friend, Mike Verrill. In the early days of creating the strategic design MBA program at Philadelphia University, which is now Thomas Jefferson University, I was looking for some hybrid thinkers. We called it the MBA for hybrid thinkers. And I was looking for hybrid thinker instructors. And I wanted to, to find someone who could teach an accounting course for MBA students in a way that integrated the principles of design thinking. And Jim is just brilliant in that way. He's a super curious human being. He is, as you shared, he's a CPA, a CFO, and he was just so, he, he kept thanking me for inviting him to teach in the program because he taught in the way we should all learn to teach, which is he was constantly learning. And so one of the, the an example of the way he shifted the way he taught accounting is in accounting and, and uh, managerial accounting is that, you know, a balance sheet tells a story. It's a snapshot in time about choices that have been made about resources. If I had been taught accounting in that way, I might have fallen in love with accounting. You know, just to shift the way you're thinking about the stories that numbers tell, the choices that we have. So that's an example of how he integrated story, which is a, which is a really important principle in design thinking to how he was teaching accounting. But yeah, his his personal getaway to chase storms and tornadoes just shows the ways that he sparks wonder in his world and in his life. There's, I think, a physicality, an adrenaline rush. There is what I now understand to be an ignition of the sensorial dimension of our of ourselves, of our beings. You know, we are first sentient beings. We first sense make and being out in nature. On I've never chased a tornado, but he's described to me being in places like Iowa, for example, or like Montana, and just the sensorial experience of the smell shifts in the environment, what you see. And so he's, he's engaging in a sensorial experience that I can't help but think really informs the way he can show up to work, which is a work practice which requires particular attention to detail and minutia and focus, in which, which Jim is, is excellent at. And what I take from that is, is how my, we, what, what's our equivalent in our own lives? What's our, our tornado chasing, storm chasing counterpoint um, in our life to, to spark that wonder and that all, which can only inform the work that we do. Have you ever been tempted to go with him on one of these <laughs> storm chasing adventures? I haven't yet, but now that you're bringing it up, I, I would totally be open to that. And he started, he told me he started bringing his son. Um, who is um, either end of high school now or maybe just started college, which I think is, is a, must be a really magical parent-child experience. But um, I would love to learn that and tag along with him. He's, he's great. 
I, I'm tempted just from how you described it. And my little guy is fearless. He'd be like, let's go, dad. <laughs> I, I've also I, encouraged him to write a book about this. I think he should write a collection of short essays. And I think I'm pretty sure knowing Jim, he's kept a notebook, a journal about it. But I think that there's so much that can be extrapolated from that experience. Like it, I, I, when I, we had lunch about six months ago and I was encouraging him then. And I share with him this great book by, I think the la- author's last name is Bode, B-O-D-E, but it's called First You Have to Row a Little Boat. And I've always wanted to learn to sail, still haven't learned it, but I, I found this book when I was in my mid-20s. And it's just an incredible memoir and metaphor because sailing is just this incredible life lesson about leaning into the wind, adapting the sail so you uh, sometimes need to push up against it, knowing how to navigate, knowing when to chill, knowing when to move forward, knowing, um, being aware of, of your, of, you know, it's, it's proprioception, you know, being aware yeah. of where you are in space. Um, but, but the writer uh, just takes you through first rowing a little boat, grew up on, off, on Long Island, and then, you know, elevating towards a real magnificent sailboat. Um, but things like, the, what, you know, I'm just very interested in what are the activities in our world, whatever it is for you, that can just help you learn those, those life lessons and, and spark both the wonder and the rigor that you need in your life. That's great. I want to move from literal tornadoes to figurative tornadoes and the figurative tornado being technology and the tornado of AI in our world, which is certainly a tornado making its way through the workplace and through the media. And at the macro level, a lot of people are are afraid of losing their jobs to AI, right? There's a, a recent Harris poll that said most workers are are wary of generative AI and 50% don't trust this technology. And then at the micro level, we've got a lot of folks, especially in the creative community, that are understandably freaked out by what generative AI apps like Dolly 2, Midjourney, and Stable Diffusion can do. Now, you recently at South by Southwest said, the key thing for us to meet this moment is to chill and flow. Yes. (laughs) which is a very welcome uh, message, I think. And I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about that and any additional advice that you have for creatives in particular who are afraid that AI is going to disrupt their work or identity. Well, first, from my perspective, is to acknowledge the fear, right? And and is to acknowledge that there, there will be casualties. There will be loss of jobs. And what a lot of people are, are saying is that they believe that it's not going to be a loss completely of jobs, but you have to morph the way you do your job. And in any event, it's a loss. The other thing I think is important to realize is that in many ways, this is not new. And I mean that in the following ways. Number one, this is kind of version 2.0 of AI. I think version one was IoT, remember Internet of Things? That was something that was like top of mind like five to 10 years ago, where we were talking about the interconnectivity of objects and of nodes and networks through technology. That version was really affecting blue-collar factory workers, right? We were talking about how robotics was going to be taking over and has taken over a lot of factory jobs. And what's what's striking the fear of God in so many people now is that this version is really affecting knowledge workers, as you as you put it, um, people who work in the creative economy. That's that's so that's a whole different animal because now things like chat GPT are seemingly um, replacing our ability to think. And if, before I talk about ChatGPT and my um, note of encouragement and optimism is that another example that we, that we lo- where we see evidence that every introduction of a new technology, there's fear. I, I'm assuming I wasn't alive then, but when the phonograph, the phonograph was first introduced, some people thought, oh my gosh, people will never go to live music events anymore because they can just hear the live music recorded. And of course, we know that did not happen, right? So I think if we have some historical hindsight perspective, we can assuage some of our fears. And the other way I like to assuage people's fears is to understand that if you play even a little bit with something like ChatGPT, then you are astutely aware that you still need to be really good at asking questions. And yes. that is the case for the coder who designed the algorithm 
as well as for people who are engaging in the technology. Um, there is now a new job role called a prompt engineer, which wasn't even a thing pre-pandemic two, three years ago. And these are people who are really good and tasked with asking and framing different questions to feed into the algorithm. So that means that we still need to up the ante in our ability to think critically, to frame questions, know how to frame and reframe questions, and frankly, to use our imagination, which while there is this term artificial imagination, which I first learned from the musician and technologist Shelley Palmer back in 2017, I read an interview with him in a PricewaterhouseCoopers article, computer technology still cannot tap the level of imagination that humans have, that we as humans have access to. In part, I go back to my point about we are sentient beings. We have an ability to sense make in our environment, which stems from interoception connected to the vagus nerve in our body, as well as perioception. And that really matters in terms of the sense that we make from our environment, the sorts of questions that we can ask, and therefore the amount of creativity that we can we can build as a capacity. I still feel very optimistic about our ability to do that. The fantastic answer. And I, I want to just double click on one thing that you said related to prompt engineers. So the idea of being a prompt engineer is something Nate and I talk a lot about. Uh, it was pretty recent. The, uh, the CEO of Baidu said that in the next, I think, 20 or 30 years, 50% of people will have some sort of prompt engineer title or role. We thought that sounded a uh, a little, a little Pollyannish, but still, you know, speaks to where things are going. And of course, there's uh, folks that are now actually engineering the AI to do a better job at figuring out what the right prompt would, should be internally. Now, in your book, you have a chapter titled "Ask a Better Friggin' Question," which yes. is fantastic and speaks to the importance of the power of inquiry. And we just love that. And as you think about the importance of better questions lead to better prompts as something that's that's critical. Where do people struggle or why do people struggle with asking better questions? What are what are the blocks to to inquiry? So one of the the reasons I think we really struggle with inquiry and asking questions, I, I take a, a, a cue from my friend and colleague Warren Berger, who's the author of A More Beautiful Question, a book of beautiful questions. He calls himself a questionologist. Warren says that we should actually be teaching how to ask questions, which I just thought was a brilliant thought and piece of advice. Because when you think about it, we don't actually teach how to ask questions. And so that led me down a path to develop what I call a taxonomy of questions, because not all questions are created equally. And so there are what I call divergent questions, really big, expansive questions. And when you ask these questions, I don't know about you guys, but I literally have a physical reaction uh-huh. of feeling myself relax. So ex- diversion questions are questions like, why? What if? I wonder. I don't think there's really anything bad that follows the phrase, I wonder. Then there are convergent questions, questions that help us to focus in and hone in. Those questions are questions like, when, who, what, and then there are questions which I the start with the word how, which I call how is kind of a hybrid between diversion and conversion because it'd be how might we, which can yeah. be very divergent. But then like, how are we going to get this document completed can be also very tactical and convergent. So when we even understand the landscape of questions that we have available to us and understand it in those terms, that actually helps us to get better at asking the questions and also understanding that questions are inputs into a system. And that system could be making dinner. That system could be a better financial model for the company. That system could be um, product development. If we keep asking the same questions, we're going to keep getting the same output. But if we ask a different set of questions, we'll get a different output. So then the next logical question is well, how do you ask better questions? You got to surround yourself with people who are different from you, who have different training, different skill sets, different perspectives on the same thingamajig that you've been staring at for the past quarter or the past couple of months. 
there's there's something here I want to tie it all together as it I'm kind of experiencing it in my mind is we were talking earlier about in boardrooms and in the educational systems, we have this inability to foster these kind of things. And what's really fascinating to me is we're having the same experience in, co- in corporations, but it's not a surprise because if you're having that experience in academia, you go on to recreate the same things inside of the corporation. And what we're tying all together in this moment is this unlocking of human potential in the forms of uh, learning, of creativity, of curiosity. But to what end? And the, to what end is culture? Right? So you get to have this, you foster this entirely new culture that isn't a culture of followers waiting to be told what to do, but it's actually a culture of thinkers and people who are asking very, very interesting questions that are creating very compelling opportunities in a world that's dynamic and disrupted. So it's, it all flows through in the system. If we can start to do this earlier, we can get the, the results we're looking for at the corporate level, but we can also start to create the world that we've always wanted to create anyway. And you can tell me if I'm crazy if I just said... <laughs> No, no, I, I agree with you, Nate. I think you're absolutely right that it's, it's, we are on the cusp, if we play our cards right, of a really incredible convergence. Yeah. That is, from my perspective, a convergence of personal development and professional development. And yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and that is something that, so I came of age professionally during a time, I'm a Gen Xer during a time where personal development happened on your own hours after 5 p.m. or on weekends. Professional development, if you were lucky, you worked for a great organization, included being sent to conferences and having professional development and all sorts of other training in interesting ways. And because of the generation of, of millennials and now centennials, there is an, and I couple with the pandemic, there's an expectation that personal development will be normalized and converge with professional development. And there's also been a normalization of mental health and emotional health and that sort of awareness. So the best companies in the future will be the ones that are able to make space and room for that personal development in the organization. I won't shy away from the sorts of conversations that sort of support, and they'll be able to attract and retain the best talent. And the ones that won't do so well will be the ones that still kind of silo personal development from professional development. But I, I often, I, I, I used to say during the COVID pandemic that the blurred boundaries that we were starting to see on Zoom and on Teams were actually, were coming full circle back to centuries ago when the majority of the world was based on an agricultural economy, where you woke up in the morning, you did, you did your ablutions, you had something to eat, you stepped over your threshold, and you were at work, right, at the, on the farm or mainly on the farm <laughs> um, or on the plot of land that, that your family subsisted on. Um, and nowadays I have a home office. I wake up in the morning, I do my ablutions, I eat some food, I cross the threshold and literally I have a 30 second commute to work. And so we're, we're kind of coming full circle in, in a lot of ways in, in human civilization, in my view, of that convergence. And even in an agricultural economy, Personal development and professional development were always merged. They weren't. They weren't so separate because community was tied to it. I mean, if we think we have to survive in a VUCA environment that's volatile and certain, complex and ambiguous. Think about wrestling with Mother Nature and the Earth every single day. Heck, I have a little crop, vegetable crop outside of our house, and I get frustrated because some creature is eating the lettuce or the collard greens. Yeah. Like, what if I had to? only subsist on that. And I didn't have a water hose and it wasn't raining every single day, you know? So I think that perspective can actually help us to feel like this is actually something we we can embrace and we can adjust to because it's in our DNA as humans. That is such a spectacular answer and and love, love, love the perspective. And as Nate Nate just said, yeah, we, we totally agree. This is this is what we see as the big, big opportunity is to unlock personal development and personal growth for work and to make these things symbiotic and not have people shy away and say, oh, that's too hoochie or that's in the... Kumbaya, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you, yeah, you, you, you go to Burning Man, but then you come back and be ready to work like that. Yeah. <laughs> and so... I'm curious to know, where are you seeing this done well? Where are you seeing this embrace? Where are you seeing people get past these 
limitations of putting personal growth and personal development uh, in the silos that they've traditionally been been in in this era, as opposed to folks that are pulling it in and making it part of the fabric of their culture and the way they do business. I think the dust is still settling, so I'm not seeing it en masse, but I'll give one example, which I was I was actually seeing, this is an example pre-pandemic. One of the companies that I interviewed is called ArcWeb. It's a small tech firm here in Philadelphia where I live, and they were already experimenting with a work cycle that was three days in the office and two days out of the office. And the people I interviewed were sharing that what they were observing was happening is that they were able to do that deep focused work without interruption on the days they were working from home, which prompted them to use collaboration opportunities much more efficiently and not so much in a reactionary way once they were back in the office because they were much more deliberate and intentional about figuring out ways to collaborate with their colleagues versus saying, kind of, you're in the office and while there's a nice, could be a nice spontaneity about seeing, bumping into someone and saying, let's, let's figure this out. You haven't really thought it through of how you want to collaborate with those. Who do you want to bring in to the, the team effort was super valuable. But one of the things I'm working on, especially for my next book, which is about something I, I'm calling invisible work and gut up work, is collecting more of those examples and those case studies. And so it's still what I'm observing. It might be happening in departments or in sections of companies and organizations, but not necessarily a full throttle approach to, to, to the work culture yet. Um, I want to touch on that really quick. I'm not going to ask you to give too much away because it's going to be in your next book, but you have, can you give us a little teaser on, you first you say, and these are very playful terms, there was IQ, which is chin up, and then there's EQ, which is chest up, and then there's CQ, which is the creative quotient, which is gut up. So can you give us just a little teaser to get us excited about this next book? Yeah, this next book is going to be a provocation about new ways to be productive and new metrics of productivity in the face of unprecedented amounts of burnout, ubiquitous technology, and these blurred boundaries where we are all working, where home, life, play, learning are all kind of merging. And so invisible work is is powered by a framework I've developing called the Motor Framework, uh, M as a Mary TR. And so Motor is a way for us to understand where, what are the realms where we can engage in invisible work? And by the way, I, I, there is a term of invisible, invisible work that refers to women's gendered work where uh, our work has not always been um, acknowledged or paid for. But I'm talking about invisible work that you can't track, right? That's not when you're on Zoom turning through email um, at the whiteboard, but it's when you step away and you're engaged in activities in the motor realms, which are movement, that's the M, thought, that's the T, and rest, that's the R. So it's those it's activities in those three areas that really begin to catalyze different neurosynapses in the brain and the default mode region of the brain, not so much in the frontal neocortex, so that when you return to the work at hand, you are much more generative. It's one of the reasons why we have the shower moments. It's why when we're yep. emerging from a deep rest, where all of a sudden things click. And so in the midst of ubiquitous tech and unprecedented amounts of burnout and the reality that we work home in learning and player kind of merging, the book is going to be telling, sharing research on the neuroscience of creativity and sharing stories from examples of workplaces and people who are tapping into invisible work so that we can really optimize the technology and have much more meaningful productivity. I love it. And and you did talk a little bit about this in an article that you wrote for, for Fast Company. And I think one of the challenges is that you're pointing to whether it's time in the shower or daydreaming or time away from the office, this stuff doesn't have great branding in the corporate world, right? <laughs> yeah. like, like no. Let's call it what it is. This, is. this is stuff that people consider counterproductive, not productive. They, this is stuff that is considered by many, this is procrastination. Daydreaming is procrastination. And what you're saying, which is, in my experience, true, 
you get this amazing unlock when you give yourself the grace to take this space. But it's, it's a fight to get away from this crazed calendar hacking lifestyle that we're all in at this moment, especially as we work from home and try to embrace the mess and make it all work together. So I, I, I would love, and I know our audience would love to hear, you know, how do you do this practically? How do you give yourself permission? How do you yourself drop into it? How do you encourage others and corporations to embrace this more? Because it's essential. And what you're saying is it's essential and we believe you, but how do you, how do you do it? And, and how do you give yourself permission? Yeah, well, I admit it's a very, it's very counterintuitive advice and it requires fundamentally a shift to working cultures grounded in trust because it requires not a micromanager sort of leadership, but a macro manager sort of leadership. Already, leaders and managers are, are needing to make this adjustment, which just feels very awkward, where you can't constantly monitor the work of, of employees, but you have to zoom out. And one of the ways to do that is actually to apply some of the principles of wonder and rigor. So the rigor, wonder is about deep curiosity and audacity and awe and blue sky thinking and pausing. And rigor is about focus, discipline, time on task. Rigor requires deep thought. Rigor cannot be done when you're turning through email. Rigor cannot be done when you're kind of do, you know, keeping up with tasks. So one of the things, and I'll just give one tip, is that you have to intentionally calendar in these times to pause and to walk away. And if you're a manager, you must model this. So one way to do this is to decide as a team, and you can do baby steps. If it feels too crazy to do this once a week, once a month, block out a morning where there are no calls taken, no one that should be on email, and you're giving people permission to do that deeper work. Read up on some articles, watch some webinars to help you dive more deeply to the work at hand. Have a walking meeting with a colleague, play, move, right? And then come to the work at hand. Then people say, oh, but what if our clients need us? Here's the cool thing about clients. Clients will fall in line with the boundaries that you create. This is really a provocation about new boundary setting, about expanding and morphing the boundaries we've set about the ways that we work. And the ways that we design our time is one of the first steps towards it. So that's one of the the practical things to do. Here's the cool thing. This is a productivity play. This is about business ROI. You will find that your teams appreciate the opportunity to do that. And we had an example years ago at Google. Google used to do 20% time where every fifth day they allow people to tinker and to do stuff that wasn't related to their P&L responsibilities. And one of the things that grew from that was Gmail, right? So this is one of the practical steps that we can take of intentionally calendaring it. And I do this by intentionally calendaring a five-minute walk. If that's all, if that's what my budget of time can afford for the day, that's what I do a 90 second daydream break. It doesn't have to be an entire day, Mm -hmm. right? But it's these micro doses of invisible work that will help you to boost your productivity. I love it so much. And I've been, you know, keeping track of all these horrible trends of productivity trackers where people are using, you know, mouse jigglers at work to show that they're busy. I'm just thinking like, what about an invisible work tracker? Like, oh man, I'm really short on my daydream hours this week. I'm I'm sorry. I'll see you guys later. Like, I mean, but we need it. We need it. We We absolutely need it. And I, I love that you're, that you're taking this call to action out into the world and, and bringing the data behind the provocation to show people actually know this is this is what great work and productivity looks like. You can't have one without the other. Well, it's it's ta- it's making the invisible visible, and it's teaching us to learn to see in a completely different way. Yes, which is very very cool. Exactly. Yes. Thank you. Yes. I would love to take us into a speed round, Natalie, where we're going to ask you some um, short questions that we'd love for you to answer each one in sixty seconds or less. And, and just give us whatever your gut response is because you know the gut so well. So, Alex, you kick us off. Okay. So who or what companies out there are leading in this new era for creativity? The first thing that came to my mind is uh, Beyonce. And here's why. 
the performers that are that are integrating technology and experience design so well, I think we have a lot to learn from. Number one, they're leveraging those moments where we can be together, human to human, high touch. I would put Dua Lipa in that same category. I had the pleasure of attending a Dua Lipa concert in Philly. I guess it was like nine months ago now, but the ability that someone like Beyonce has to leverage technology, she's doing cool stuff with lighting design and and textile technology to, to morph the, the ways that she's appearing to people. And that has a feedback loop effect on the experience. I think those are great examples of integrating a lot of what we, you and I have been talking about in terms of, of, of being sentient beings, merge of technology and those blurred boundaries. Love that. I have to just share this because Beyonce plays a role in my family life. And I will tell you guys <laughs> why, because in my, in my late twenties, well before I met my wife, I had a moment, I was at a nightclub and Beyonce and Jay-Z were on stage at the nightclub and I swear we locked eyes and she gave me a look and there was a moment and I felt it and she felt it. And I've told my wife this many times, she refuses to believe me, but it was truth and I will take it to my grave. Alex, you are a gay bro. That's awesome. Uh, That is so great. Okay, Natalie, your next question is, is there a duality to the future of work or AI that most aren't seeing? Yeah, I think the duality is high touch and virtual. I think I think that we will increasingly crave meaning and we will increasingly crave that connection to each other because of the ubiquity of technology. And I think that is the opportunity. Love that. It seems in this moment that you're sharing some ideas that people might think are counterintuitive to American socialization, such as slow down, be willing to lose following as a form of leadership and be willing to quit. Why is it the time for that now? Well, having worked in the fashion industry, fashion is propelled by this idea of zigging away from where everyone else is zagging. And I have really built a lot of my own sense-making and work as a foresight practitioner based on that principle. Foresight work is really has less to do about telling the future and being really observant about the present. And so when I am provoking people to think about what you're willing to lose, who you're willing to follow, quit, et cetera, all the things that we were taught is not, not what you should do. It's actually that pausing is actually a catalyst for growth. And we need to pause. We need to figure out what are we going to edit out now? Because everyone is complaining about overwhelm, about oversaturation with information. So for those reasons, it's really important to pause and think about what am I willing to lose? Who might I start to follow instead of only thinking about leadership as being out front and, and all those other sorts of things? Okay. Top two reason you're, you are optimistic and inspired by this future of work? What are the two things out there when, when the media is negative and the negative narratives are everywhere? Why are you feeling good? One of the things that makes me really inspired in this, I think a lot of people, especially as we get older, say this, but it's younger people. We have a 22-year-old and it's really cool. I, I mean, I, first, I think we're always learning from our children at every stage of, of their development. There's something really cool that happens when you literally are learning stuff from your child because they are just into things that you don't know, that you don't understand, to ask them for tactical instructional advice about things. And, and for me and John, sometimes it's just like basic tech stuff, but also her perspective on something we are both, we're all looking at and wondering about and what's, what's her take on it. So for example, something that Sydney, who is a newly minted college grad and has a job with McKinsey, so we're really happy for her and excited for her. She's really into ag tech. Agriculture and technology are two words. That, that wasn't a mashup. That was not a thing 10 years ago. I mean, for people, some insiders in the industry, but it's something that really matters to her. She's been a vegetarian since she was about 10 years old and not even for health reasons. It was really for ethical reasons. So younger people are are my fellow humans who who make me very optimistic. And then also what makes me optimistic is that when I 
you know, think about the world that my parents navigated as African-Americans in the United States, while there are still tremendous social challenges and barriers because of racism, because of classism, um, because of sexism, I still have it a lot better than, than they do. And, and so just, just understanding where I am in time from a historical perspective also gives me hope. So that's interesting. My answer turns out was both a bit of foresight through my daughter and a bit of hindsight through my parents. So disconnected to, to, to those groups of people, that, that connection to those groups of people makes me optimistic. All right. Very last question. If you could be reincarnated as any artist, dead or alive, who would you be? I think Josephine Baker, because she was just such a badass. She was so, um, she was so literally comfortable in her skin and her body. She broke barriers in the United States and in Europe as a Black woman. She really shifted and, and blew open standards of beauty. She was an incredible dancer. She was a philanthropist. She was a humanist. She adopted, I don't know how many children from all different ethnic backgrounds from around the world. I can't imagine how difficult and alienating moments of her existence, existence often were, but what a life and what an impact she had. Fantastic answer. Natalie, thank you for the good work that you're doing, for helping us build a bridge to this exciting future work, uh, for helping to make the unseen seen and, and teaching our brains to dance with creativity. Like everything about what you're doing right now feels so right and so aligned for the world that we're all awakening to. Thank you. What a compliment. Thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute delight. You're fantastic. I can't wait for people to hear your wisdom and insights and optimism for, for where we go from here. And just to remind everybody, find Natalie on her website, figure8thinking.com. That's figure the number eight thinking.com. And also look for her on LinkedIn where she is teaching, sharing amazing content and doing her thing for all of us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this journey. In a world where attention is scarce and content is abundant, it means a lot. To learn more about this episode, go to disruptedwork.com forward slash podcast, where you can find show notes and key details about the episode, our guests, and how to connect with us. Our website also contains additional resources for learning, including our future work mindset model and action plan. The best way you can support the disrupted workforce is to subscribe to our show, on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To help others thrive in the future work, spread the word by rating and reviewing the podcast and sharing your favorite episodes with the people you care about. Disrupt yourself to unlock your future. <laughs>